We find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke, as you may already know, if you have a sermon note outline. Luke chapter 23 is where we are, and it's about Jesus. Luke chapter 23. We begin this morning at verse 39. Uh, it was good to uh, be able to experience what we just did a moment ago. Hear our choir, uh, our musicians lead us in worship and exalt the name of Jesus. Um, the para, um, pandemic, we, we've missed that for the most part. But we're grateful to God for the privilege of being able to um, hear it like it, we just did again. Verse 39 of Luke chapter 23. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Let's stop there. Obviously, you know, the sermon title is At the Cross. Significant events transpired at, on, and as a result of the cross of Christ. Those happenings testify to the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Uh, those events were out of the ordinary. If you just read that, you understand they were not ordinary, routine events. For if Jesus had been an ordinary man dying an ordinary death of a man who deserved to die, then the extraordinary, unique, and unforgettable things that surrounded it and were a part of his crucifixion and death would not have occurred. We have a record of those extraordinary, unforgettable, unique things preserved for us by the gospel writer Luke. Those things were supernatural things. Those things were miraculous and they uniformly bear witness to the uniqueness of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no one like him. Could never be anyone else like him. He is sui generis. He is in a class by himself. He is one of a kind. He is like no other. No other is like him. And because of who he is and what he did... 
which was singularly unique. He alone is who he claimed to be. And those significant events testify to it. The first of the significant events is the spiritual transformation of a criminal. It is our initial heading for our message this morning, A Criminal Saved. This is the familiar account of the thief on the cross. Everybody's heard about the thief on the cross. The crucifixion of that thief at that time, however, you need to understand, was not accidental, nor was it uh, random. It was a result of the providential arrangement of God who orchestrated all the contingencies in his life to fulfill divine purpose and plan in that criminal's life at the moment that we meet him. But you know, there's another criminal. Jesus was crucified between two of them. And that other criminal, he's referred to in verse 39. And we're going to designate him criminal number one. Because he speaks first. And we see something here in verse 39 when he says, it says, hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Criminal number one was venting his depravity toward Jesus. The text says he was hurling abuse. In the original language, it is the word blasphemeo. As you may guess, it's the word in English, blasphemy. It was slandering him. It was to speak evilly of Jesus Christ. Also, the original language indicates to us that it was not a one-off. That is, he didn't say it one time and shut his mouth. It was continuous. He was there hanging on a cross, dying, heading into eternity, and he was blaspheming the Lord of glory. That tells you about the depravity of human beings. The question that he asked of our Lord, are you not the Christ, was not sincere. He didn't really want to know. That was nothing but bitter sarcasm and disrespect. He had absolutely no belief that Jesus was indeed the Christ, our Messiah. So he asked that question, Unbelievingly, he asked him this as well. You see in the verse, save yourself and us. This is simply a taunt. He didn't believe Jesus could save them from their predicament. In fact, this taunt is the same one that the Jewish rulers leveled against Jesus and, and also the Roman soldiers leveled at Jesus. Now, what's fascinating about it when he says, save yourself and us, it's ironical. Unknown to that thief and unknown to the Jewish rulers and unknown to the Roman soldiers, Jesus was in the business of saving. The irony is, if he had saved himself, he had come down from the cross, he couldn't have saved us. But he stayed on the cross for us. He was there. On our behalf. Criminal number two. The one that we designate the thief on the cross. He had previously joined in the taunting. He had previously hurled blasphemy at our Lord Jesus Christ. While he too was hanging next to him on the other side 
on his way into eternity. But his words change. You can see in verse 40. Uh, but the other answered in rebuking him said, do you not even fear God? Let's stop at the comma. His words now reflect a 180 degree change. What happened to this thief was this. It was a miracle. It's the miracle of the new birth. He had been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus talked about the new birth in John chapter 3. While this man was hanging there on the cross, while he was undergoing all of that he was enduring on his way into eternity, the mercy and grace of God transformed him. That dying thief, who was until his transformation, was spiritually dead. He was spiritually blind. But God opened his blinded spiritual eyes and he could see for the first time the reality of who he was and who Jesus is. He received a new heart. He experienced grace and mercy. You say, how do you know that? When someone has had their spiritual eyes open, when they've experienced the grace and mercy of God, when they have been born again, there is evidence. It cannot be unmistaken. It, it, there, there is evidence to that reality. And we see the evidence of the transformation that took place on that Good Friday. That miracle in his life. I've already read the question. He posed it to his former fellow criminal. Do you not even fear God since you're under the same condemnation? He asked that question and let me answer it. No, he didn't. Criminal number one didn't fear God because sinners don't fear God. And the reason we know sinners don't fear God is because God says so in Romans three eighteen. There's no fear before their eyes. They do not reverence him. They do not feel a f fear the judgment is coming from him but this repentant sinner did fear God he feared divine judgment he understood that Rome's punishment pertained only to the body but divine judgment included both body and soul Jesus you may recall in Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 said this Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. He's talking about fearing God. Who has the ability to destroy not only the body but the soul in hell. Punish the soul in hell. Fear him. He is the one who is to be feared. The sovereign Lord who at a moment's notice, even without a moment's notice, can destroy a body and soul in hell. Jesus says fear him sadly people don't fear him they treat him trivially they treat him lightly and that's a bad thing to do that is a foolish thing to do it is a terrifying thing Hebrews 10 31 says to fall into the hands of the living God that's why you want to fear him if you're not a Christian, you want to have that dread of him. The scripture is clear about the reality of falling into his hands. 
Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29 says this, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? That's a gesture of contempt. And as regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. What that verse means in summary is all the punishment will be greater for those who reject Christ and those who under the Old Testament law refuse the law of Moses. Because of the person of Christ to reject him and to, to insult the Holy Spirit, there will be a severer punishment, greater punishment in eternity for that person who does that. That's why it says it is a terrible thing, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sadly, the unbeliever doesn't fear God. But this thief, criminal number two, he feared God. Second thing we notice about him back in our text, he confesses his sin. You notice what he does. Verse 41, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. Let's stop there. The penalty executed against him and his fellow criminal was just. They had committed the crimes for which they were being punished. He is saying we deserve our execution. We deserve to die couple of things here we need to understand number one they were cre uh, criminals they the other gospel writers tell us they were thieves they had broken the eighth commandment god says you shall not steal they had broken god's moral law which is binding on all men for all time and all places they've broken it they had also broken man's law, the Romans' law. That's why they were on those crosses being executed and going to die. This man says it was just. When the human judges said, you're guilty and you're going to die on a cross, he is saying, yes, we violated the law. Yes, we're guilty. Yes, we sinned. Yes, we deserve what we're getting. Confessed to sin. That man had been transformed. He saw himself for what he really was. A sinner. That's how you know you've met the Savior. That's how you know that you've been transformed. That's how you know that something significant has happened to you spiritually when you recognize, man, I am a sinner. I have violated God's law. Sinned against him. This man was one who uh, recognized his spiritual poverty. He was poor in spirit. This man was like the one in Luke 18. Be merciful to me as he beat on his breast, for I am the sinner. He confessed his sins. How we know that he experienced a new birth. That's how we know he had been supernaturally changed by the grace of God. To notice something else it didn't stop there the assessment of his own uh, life and what he was guilty of his view of Jesus changed in fact it radically changed no longer was he hurling abuse blaspheming as we mentioned earlier along with criminal number one he didn't join in the crowd any longer but he saw Jesus for who Jesus really is 
he saw the character of Jesus. You see it there in verse 41, the bottom of the verse. But this man has done nothing wrong. Christ, he asserts, had not committed any crimes. Christ was innocent. In fact, he was sinless. How do we know that? I believe the Holy Spirit taught him that. When he came to faith, when Christ saved him, the Holy Spirit transformed him in a new birth. He saw Christ for who he really is. He is sinless. He's no criminal. He didn't deserve to be on that cross. The criminal number one deserved to be there. Criminal number two said, yes, I deserve to be here. We both deserve to be here. But Christ didn't. So after he finished a speech to his former compadre in crime, he turns his attention to Jesus himself. Notice verse 42. Jesus. <laughs> Notice that Jesus. He says something about that name. <laughs> Jesus. You know, it's good because that name, Jesus means Yahweh salvation. Yahweh saves. That's why he had the name Jesus. Because he is the one who saves. He came to save his people from their sins. That's why he's called Jesus. In this close environment, there's death and the certainty of it. And he's been changed and he looks at Jesus and he says in that intimate moment, Jesus. He makes a request. Remember me. Some suggest he's saying, remember me for good. Yes, that, that's included. But he's saying, when you come into the kingdom, your kingdom, I think that the request for remember me is more than that. I believe it has to include forgiveness. Why would he do that? He'd been on that cross, Remember? And he heard Jesus earlier. Jesus' first statement from the cross. He said this in Luke 23, 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. He heard from the lips of the crucified one. Forgive them, Father. This man was asking for pardon for his sins he wanted to have them remitted what's interesting about this Jesus was in the process of getting that done because he's going to pay for that man's sins and for your sins and my sins we hadn't been born yet but Jesus on that cross going to pay for them so we could have the forgiveness of our sins. Moreover, the man says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now let me break this down for a moment, I think. Come into your kingdom. He believed that Jesus was a king. You know, the Jews didn't believe he was a king of the Jews. 
Pilate didn't believe that Jesus was the king of the Jews. In fact, in Luke chapter 23, 38, Pilate had put over the head of our Lord an inscription which reads, this is the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate didn't do that because he believed it. Pilate did that because he wanted revenge against the Jews. That was what he was up to. He wanted to rub it in their face. This is your king, huh? Because <laughs> there's contention between Pilate and the Jews, and so that's what he's doing. But Pilate unwittingly stated the truth. This is the king of the Jews. And I, what I believe happened here, this man understood that Jesus was the king of the Jews and that he was going to have a kingdom he believed that Jesus was Israel's Messiah who would indeed establish his kingdom as promised in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants this kingdom would be established at the end of the age when Jesus returned Perhaps this man had heard uh, Jesus' teaching about his coming again to bring in the long-awaited kingdom. The Jews were looking for the kingdom to come and be established, a political kingdom, a kingdom where the Jews would be in charge of their nation again and they'd have their king, their Messiah, ruling over them. And Jesus talked about his reign. He talked about it. You can go through the Gospels and you can see where Jesus talked about his return on a number of occasions. Perhaps this man had heard that. So this thief, uh, let's call him the transformed thief, believed that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom. In fact, he knew that people did not survive crucifixion. Death was inevitable. But he believed that Jesus had power over death. Think about that. He has to see Jesus dying there, and he says he's going to die, but yet he's going to have a kingdom? Somehow, he is going to come back and establish a kingdom? This man's been transformed. How would he know that Jesus had power over death? Let me tell you how he knew it. Jesus had raised Lazarus only recently from the dead. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, that news spread throughout Jerusalem. Everybody heard about it. In fact, it was one of the catalysts that moved the religious leaders, we got to kill him now. He's going around raising people from the dead. So he knew Jesus had power over death. Also, the transformed thief was aware, and I'm predicating this on the fact that he's Jewish, that Daniel 12.2 promised the saints would be raised and given a place of honor or glory in the kingdom. No doubt he had heard in synagogue growing up. Let, let's say he did that. He had heard. He knew what the Jewish belief was based on the Old Testament. And so he asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. kingdom which is coming at the end of the age that's in the future but what's fascinating here Jesus talks about right now 
And he says to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus said, truly, amen is the word. We say amen. We, we put the amen at the end of something we agree with. Jesus starts off saying amen. This is significant. Today you will be with me in paradise. That very day, he would join Jesus there. That Friday. Paradise, that word comes from the Persian word that means a park or garden. It symbolized a place of bliss, beauty, and delight. Paradise is another name for heaven. As we learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 and 4. It tells us it's the abode of God. The tree of life is there. Revelation chapter 2 verse 7. The tree of life symbolizing eternal life. It's there in the paradise of God. And we will all be there who are redeemed. And we will eat from that tree in the paradise of God in the third heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. Be with me in heaven. There's an intimacy there. Fellowship. Be with me. Think about it. Can you imagine that? Just think for a moment. Both Jesus and this man are going to die. And instantly they're going to be in heaven. In the abode of God. And they're going to be fellowshipping there in paradise. Now let me give you an additional note. The state of existence between physical death and the resurrection of the body is called the intermediate state. Believers go to be with the Lord immediately after death. Scripture's clear, Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. But they do not receive at that time uh, their new bodies, their glorified bodies. They're in an intermediate state. They're dead physically, they're in heaven, yes, but they have not received their resurrection body. That, that, that intermediate state. They, we will not get our new bodies until the resurrection and rapture of the church. And our final destination will be a new heaven and a new earth. One more thing. This guy is going to paradise. I want to say to you, every single person who goes to paradise or goes to heaven, who will be in a new heaven and new earth, is an, will be an ex-something. It's going to be filled full of X's. <laughs> the general title, X sinners, can populate the new heaven and the new earth. They will be in heaven fellowshipping with Jesus Christ. X's. This guy will be an X thief. There will be X adulterers, X fornicators, X swindlers, X homosexuals, X's. They have been saved by the grace of God, transformed, and they will be in heaven. So all of us will be there with no claim about anything other than where I'm an ex, you know what. And you say, I was an ex this, but the grace of Christ and his death has saved me, and that's why I'm here. It's good news, isn't it? A criminal saved. Sin that pays our next point. 
We find it in verses 44, 45, a portion that says, and it was now about the sixth hour. Here it is, another significant happening here. And darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour from noon to three. Sun is its highest point in the sky and suddenly there is darkness. This was an extraordinary event. This phenomenon was a supernatural happening. The naturalist would say, that can't happen. That's mythological nonsense. We're talking about the creator. God can darken the sky at midday if he chooses because he controls the sky, controls the sun. He is the sovereign of all of the universe, physical and every other thing, and he can do with his creation whatever he chooses to do. It says they're obscured. It was obscured in verse 45, a portion. And this was not unprecedented in human history. It's recorded in the scripture. God caused darkness to fall on Egypt, remember? It was a judgment on that, that land that held God's people, Israel, and Pharaoh in his hardened state said, I'm not going to let them go. And God punished them with ten judgments. And one of them was darkness fell on the land for three days. And that darkness was so that it was palpable. It could be felt. Darkness in scripture symbolizes judgment. The darkness that fell on the land for three hours was symbolic of the judgment that was taking place at that moment on Christ from God. William Hendrickson, commentator, writes, Hell came to Calvary that day. Outer darkness. Judgment can be either soteriological or eschatological. The former is a judgment that saves, a soteriological uh, judgment. The latter is judgment that punishes. The judgment that is being executed upon Jesus here that is recorded in the darkness here is the soteriological or salvific judgment. God was pouring out his wrath on his substitute in order that the judgment of hell would not be endured by us. Jesus was our substitute. He was taking the hell that we should have gotten, that we deserved. So in soteriological judgment, in this regard, he was saving us from what we deserve to get. We know from further scripture revelation that Christ knew no sin but he became sin for us 2 Corinthians 5 21 he didn't become a sinner God judged him as though he had committed our sins Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree end of quote Our Lord also endured during this time of divine abandonment as he bore the divine wrath in our behalf for us. Matthew chapter 26 verse 46 uh, reminds us, we're we're all familiar with this, if you're a Christian and you've been in, in in the family of God for a while, you've read the Bible, you've heard it, where the cry of dereliction, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Hebrew words, translate me. 
When Jesus uttered those words, at that moment, the wrath of God was being poured out on him, and he was drinking the cup of judgment. Remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father that he would take the cup away from him. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's drinking the cup. In that forsakenness, we need to understand something here. Because God is omnipresent, he was there. But he wasn't there in blessing, but in fierce wrath against sin. The eternally damned will experience that aspect of the omnipresence of God. Because God is everywhere, even in hell, he'll be there, but in the sense of executing his wrath against unbelievers. Whereas for believers, we'll experience his omnipresence and fellowship, bliss, blessing, joy, delight, comfort for all eternity. Now, this reality happened and now there's another significant event see it there in verse 45 let's call it the B portion and the veil of the temple was torn in two it wasn't at the cross but as a result of the cross work of Jesus Christ the significant event of sundering of the veil in the temple Matthew chapter 27 tells us it was a supernatural event it hadn't frayed, it wasn't worn, it just didn't fall down. It was indeed supernatural. God made that clear by the way it was torn from the top of the curtain or veil to the bottom. A new way of approach to God, Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. And what God was signifying, there's a new way to approach me. The old way of approach and worship is now obsolete. So a criminal was saved, sin debt paid. Next thing we need to see is spirit dismissed. Verse 46. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirits. Having said this, he breathed his last. He cried out with a loud voice signifying that his death was not a natural death from crucifixion. <laughs> that needs to be understood. Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay my life down. Jesus here quotes Psalm 31 5 as a psalm of trust. He says, Father, into your hands. He's trusting the Father. Here's my spirit. I'm trusting you, and I'll dismiss my spirit into your hands. He laid down his life in trust, giving up his life for the sheep. And with the dismissal of his spirit, the work of redemption was shown. It is finished. A criminal saved, sin debt paid, spirit dismissed. Then last thing God praised God's praised think about it here verse 47 now when the centurion saw what had happened he began praising God saying certainly this man was innocent the centurion is a leader of a hundred soldiers this was an experienced soldier this wasn't shall we say his first rodeo he had seen a lot of crucifixions but he had never seen one like that that was a unique crucifixion. He had witnessed, he had been standing there, he had heard and seen all that had happened as the text tells us. 
In addition, what he, we see reported by Luke in his gospel, we also know that in Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, there was an earthquake and a splitting of rocks. He saw all that too. This man was there and he saw Jesus' conduct unlike any other criminal on the cross, a cross ever before. He heard our Savior's prayer of forgiveness. He had never heard that kind of thing before. And he heard his dismissal of his spirit. That was unique. And he praised God. And he gave testimony here that he's innocent. And this is a legal context. And the word innocent affirms Jesus' character and therefore declares that Jesus' crucifixion was unjust. That's what the man means. It was a miscarriage of justice. Jesus was an innocent sufferer. In the parallel account in Matthew 27, verse 54, he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. He got it right. He saw all this evidence. He saw all these events. And concluded, yes, this is the Son of God. Let me tell you something as we close. The cross divides people. Even as there is a divide between the two thieves. One believed and was redeemed. One refused to believe and was damned. What about you? If you're not a Christian, you're with criminal number one. If you are a Christian, you're with criminal number two. The one who is in heaven, even as I speak. Because Jesus said he would be. Same for you. If you're not a Christian, Jesus said, you can go there and be with me too. You have to trust him as Savior and Lord. Turn from your sin. He'll receive you. No matter what you've done. That's one of the glories of the gospel. No one can send away his to the point that God won't save him if he will turn to him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the elements representing the death of Christ. May our hearts be focused afresh upon that reality. May believers rejoice in what happened at Calvary 2,000 years ago. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.